0: listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to our podcast live with the ABA section of antitrust law. This is Ken O'Rourke, I'm the host of today's episode. It's on antitrust law in Asia, specifically antitrust developments in Asia. I'm a partner with the law firm of O'Melveny and Myers in Washington D.C. and Los Angeles and I litigate antitrust cases. Joining me a terrific group, I have Kayla Ananda Raja Nanette Dodu, Kalyani Singh, and Brent Snyder. And what we're going to do is uh, welcome everybody to our show and have each of our uh, guests introduce themselves, if they would please. And Kala, why don't we start with you?
1: Hi, everyone. My name's Kala Ananda Raja, and I hail from Singapore. I lead the competition antitrust and trade team in the law firm of Raja and Tan Asia, which cuts across Southeast Asia. The work that I do covers merger control, um, cartel investigations, conduct investigations, counselling and everything else in
2: competition law, as well as trade law.
0: Great. Thank you. Nanette.
2: Thank you, Ken. I co-head the antitrust practice of Freshfields. Uh, I'm based in China I have been for the past uh, nine and a half years, uh, and I do a range of work, ranging from merger control, antitrust conduct issues, and to some extent, a little bit of antitrust litigation as well. Terrific. Kalyani. I am from
3: India, and I practice competition law in India. I'm primarily based in Delhi uh, with a firm called and Mahajan. I have been practicing competition law, and in India, competition law is very new. It's only turning 10 now which is why I pretty much do all aspects of competition law ranging from antitrust litigation to merger control advisory and everything related to that.
4: Great. Welcome, Kalani. And Brent. I'm Brent Snyder, and I am the chief executive officer of the Hong Kong Competition Commission, which is the competition enforcement agency of Hong Kong.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you all for joining us today. We're here to discuss antitrust law developments in Asia, In the U.S., we do use the word antitrust commonly. In Europe, they like to use the word competition. In my experience in Asia, we often hear antitrust and we also hear competition. We hear both words interchangeably. Today, we'll be focusing on competition or antitrust law in Hong Kong, the People's Republic of China, India, Singapore, and Southeast Asia. Much is happening in Asia in the antitrust world and it's happening fast. This is really an exciting time in this area. To set the stage, I'd like to ask each of you to tell us about antitrust enforcement in your country or region. Who enforces the competition laws? Do you have private competition lawsuits, such as companies suing companies or consumers suing companies for competition law violations? Uh, Brent, you are an enforcer. Let's start with you. Tell us about Hong Kong.
4: In Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Competition Commission uh, enforces the competition ordinance, The communications authority also has a role in enforcement of competition issues in the telecom sector. But more generally, it is the Hong Kong Competition Commission that enforces the competition ordinance. We have a prosecutorial system, so we also have a competition tribunal in which we would bring our enforcement actions. In terms of private enforcement in Hong Kong, we don't have standalone private enforcement. We have a strictly follow-on regime that allows for follow-on actions after the competition commission has obtained a contravention finding uh, either from the competition tribunal or potentially through a commitment in which a company acknowledges an infringement of the competition ordinance. So as a practical matter, we've only been in existence for or competition law has been in effect for about three years and to this point we have not had any private enforcement because we have not yet brought any cases all the way to a verdict in fact we had our first two trials this last year and we're waiting decisions from the court which could if they go our way create a follow-on right we did have one interesting recent case where um, two local companies sued a third company for essentially breach of contract for failure to pay some of its invoices and they raised as a defense that the companies were involved in a cartel and that has been allowed to proceed as a defense in a civil case. So that was kind of a novel action in Hong Kong and may ultimately pave a way for other companies to raise cartel issues in private litigation without having to bring a standalone action.
0: Interesting, so quite a bit going on even in the early years of the Hong Kong competition enforcement uh, regime. Thank you. Kalyani, Uh, Who enforces the competition laws in India, and do you have private actions, private lawsuits over competition violations?
3: Uh, So the Competition Commission of India is primarily responsible for enforcing the Competition Act, which is the legislation uh, governing uh, the competition laws in India. Um, The enforcement architecture is a little mix of its quasi-judicial in the sense that the Competition Commission of India brings an action and uh, investigates the conduct and then decides on the conduct itself where they have judicial hearings post the investigation. After that, you have the appellate tribunals uh, where the parties can go challenging those decisions. As far as private actions are concerned, uh, so the competition regime in India is what I refer to something uh, semi-private, where anyone, and there is no locus on this, anyone from competitors, consumers, Any person can go and file a complaint at the Competition Commission of India, alleging an infringement of the Competition Act. And the current scheme of the act is such that the Competition Commission of India has to take a decision, either dismissing the complaint or initiating an investigation. There has to be a formal public decision on that. But however, having said that, once a complaint is filed, then it's all in the Competition Commission of India's discretion we refer to the Competition Commission as the CCI, Uh, CCI CCI's discretion in taking that case forward. So what happens in that situation is that once a person files a complaint and they want to withdraw it, that option is no longer available to the person. So that's how it's kind of semi-private that you can start a a proceeding but you cannot end it sort of a situation. And then after that, there are the follow-on private damages claims where uh, anyone who has been aggrieved by... A competition violator can go ahead and claim the private damages
0: great thank you uh, nanette so we heard about hong kong tell us please about the people's republic the mainland china and how it might differ from the hong kong regime
2: in china the state administration for market regulation uh, enforces the anti-monopoly law the samr is actually quite interesting because up until just last year there were three individual antitrust authorities. The Ministry of Commerce had enforced merger control. The SAIC, the State Administration for Industry and Commerce, that enforced non-price-related violations of the AML. And the National Development Reform Commission that enforced price-related violations of the AML. And last year, uniquely, as part of broader institutional reforms, the three authorities were merged into, um, into the SAMR. And so today it is the SAMR that now enforces the law. Another key feature of the uh, regime in China is that China celebrated 10 years of enforcement of the AML last year in August. As a result of that, what we've seen is quite a significant increase, or through that period, we've seen quite a significant uh, increase in the levels of enforcement. The number of merger control matters which come before the authority has increased exponentially. The number of investigations as well has increased quite significantly. I think today, up until today, together, um, more than $11 billion worth, sorry, not dollars, but RMB has actually been imposed in China. In terms of merger control, there have been uh, a number of cases where the authorities also imposed, uh, imposed remedies, and only two cases have been blocked to date. In terms of private enforcement, China has emerged as one of those jurisdictions where it is increasing quite uh, significantly. From a relatively low number of about 10 antitrust-related cases that came before the courts of first instance, we now, as at the end of 2017, have about 700 cases which were registered with the courts of first instance as being antitrust-related. Of course, not all of those cases necessarily had an antitrust component. Uh, And indeed, some of the senior judges in, in China have noted that. But private enforcement is increasing. And most notably, we're seeing that in the space of investigations and litigation around standard essential patents. Some of the interesting cases which have come through the courts include Huawei's dispute with Samsung, Huawei's dispute with IDC. In the abuse space as well, which has attracted a lot of private actions, some of the interesting cases are involved some of China's rather large companies in platforms, for example, JD.com, um, its dispute with uh, with Alibaba. So these are just some examples of the sorts of cases that we've seen go through the courts relatively uh, recently.
0: Sounds very active. Very. Kala, Singapore and, and Southeast Asia, to the extent you'd like to venture beyond Singapore.
1: Thank you, Ken. I think perhaps to start off by talking about why Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is very much a bloc. It's an ASEAN bloc, quite similar, loosely put to the European bloc, as such, the EU bloc. And to a large extent, much of the laws have seen some degree of convergence and competition law as well. Now, one of the big things that's happening in Southeast Asia is um, the implementation of competition law across all 10 countries. The last of the countries to introduce it is Cambodia, and we expect that to come on board very quickly. And the regulators in each of the 10 countries talk to each other quite a bit. So it's very much like a mini-ICN, if you want to compare it to that. There's an ASEAN economic group. The competition regulators come together very often. They collaborate and some degree of convergence in terms of principles. And hence, we look at the ASEAN countries as at one go and well, my practice sort of cuts across Southeast Asia. The other thing is the countries are so close to each other. A violation in, say, a country like Singapore is going to potentially trigger something in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and so on. And hence, the necessity to look at it at all one go. Now, with that very sort of big overview, um, the competition regulators, it's individual regulators in each of the 10 countries. Singapore, it's now a competition and consumer commission so it's known as the triple c s for short that's a new role they took on in april last year uh, enforcement and consumer protection hasn't come on in a big way but there've been various market studies being undertaken at the moment in all of the 10 countries the different regulators adopt very much a administrative approach so we do not have a prosecutorial approach as in hong kong for example I will not go into the merits of the two approaches, but essentially it is um, administrative. Now, in relation to follow-on action, the legislation in each of the countries generally allow for follow-on action. However, there hasn't been follow-on action yet. And I think that's because of the age of the competition law. Um, Whilst we, in most countries, it's about 10 years old, Singapore 14 years old, a little younger than China maybe, But follow-on action hasn't started yet. We suspect that it will. I have a strong feeling it might start off in Malaysia um, sooner rather than later. You asked about whether there can be private cases, private civil cases, in relation to competition law. Now, in each of the countries, generally, it's viewed as a regulatory violation rather than a remedy in private action as such. So... To that extent, I think in all of the 10 countries, you're not going to see a private action follow. In Singapore, we had a case some years ago where someone tried to use it as a sword, bring a case and competition law was one of the elements. And the court basically threw the competition law aspect out of it saying that the remit was within the competition commission. Um, So I don't see that happening anytime soon in a sense.
0: Great, thank you. That was a good overview. Um, And now let's go to a different question. A big topic worldwide is big tech in the digital sector. Let's zero in on big tech in the digital sector in Asia. From a competition law perspective, what is the focus of the debate in your country or or region? Is FANG, you know, FANG, that, that imagined behemoth of Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, are they chomping at the bit or are they being defanged? Uh, by the way, the one of the A's here may be Alibaba, uh, perhaps, rather than Amazon. Uh, I guess another question related, and you can answer either or both, are the ride-sharing companies, are they riding high in your area or being ridden out of town, or are they riding off into the sunset with an ownership share of the riding company, ride-sharing company left in place? Uh, who would like to go first with these big tech questions?
1: Well, I'm happy to jump straight into it. In relation to FANG, I think what's happening in the Southeast Asian region is the regulators are watching. None of them have jumped in to sort of pick it up in a big way. There has been some noise in and around Google, Facebook, even Amazon, but no actual actions yet. An important point, however, to take note of is e-commerce is being reviewed very carefully in all of the countries. There has been a study undertaken at the ASEAN level um, on e-commerce There's been a paper put out on that. Singapore itself is looking into some of these issues. It's put out a couple of different papers. And at this point in time, it's undertaking a market study in the hotels industry. So not quite your fang, but it does involve e-commerce and a number of different issues that come in, which could lead to potential conduct issues. But the study is still being undertaken and so we don't know what the results are going to be. Now, if I jump into ride hailing... That's an area which is very interesting. And it could be ride hailing or it could be any sort of e-commerce services. And I just wanted to go back a few years and talk about food delivery. Um, We had an investigation into food delivery services in Singapore. And there was a complaint made against the then incumbent alleging that they were dominant. And so an investigation commenced. Fortunately, um, the commission agreed to settle despite the fact that it didn't have powers to settle. The incumbent removed all exclusivity clauses, but we argued that there was no dominance at play as such. Now, the name of the incumbent back then remains unspoken simply because it never went public, except for a press release. Now, if I bring that into ride hailing, eh, we've had the recent case of Uber Grab, which has attracted quite a lot of attention. Uber, not Grab. Uber has appealed the matter. It's coming before the competition appeals tribunal towards the end of this year or early next year. Now, a point to make there is much turns on market definition. And even as we talk about ride hailing, what exactly is ride hailing? So the fight at the moment is in relation to market definition, and that then could determine market shares, which Singapore is for merger control determined on market share thresholds rather than turnover thresholds. Is ride hailing going to be ridden away or is it going to stay put in Singapore? I think since that decision came out, we've seen more ride hailing companies coming into the market. So lots of innovation, lots of new parties come in, but at the same time, there are parties who exit the market. It's, it's a very sort of active and vibrant market with no definitive sort of position as such as to whether there's going to indeed be abuse of dominance. So it's still very much a watch this space.
0: Great. Thank you. Kalyani, how about in India?
3: Okay. I will try to summarize this as much as possible, because if I actually start with what all is happening in the tech space in India, I'm going to run over the time. (laughs) Um, So I can divide it into two periods before 2018 and since 2018. Before 2018, the CCI looked at Facebook through WhatsApp. Incidentally, the complaint filed was there was an abuse of dominance through violation of privacy. Those were the allegations very similar to what happened in Germany. Uh, the CCI looked into it. The CCI decided it is not a competition law issue and courts were looking at privacy matters and decided to not prosecute that. Uh, CCI looked into Amazon, CCI looked into Apple, CCI looked into Uber. And uh, in fact, Uber and there's another domestic ride-hailing cab, which is called Ola. The allegation was that they were abusing the dominance. And it's one of what the general view of the bar is, one of the very well-reasoned decisions of the CCI in uh, addressing network effects and tech markets and figuring out and looking at how market dominance is very dynamic and market power can change in the tech space very frequently. And then we come to 2018, on 8th February 2018, the commission came out with a decision finding Google on abuse of dominance and penalizing it approximately $20 million for online search engine. Then, not so much as the CCI, but the government as such came up with several policies. The first one being the FDI policy, where uh, the government came up with this policy on prohibiting platforms like Amazon and Flipkart, which had foreign direct investments, having an inventory based model. So it was a policy which restricted e-commerce platforms in doing their current form of business. And then in 2019, the government has come up with something called as the e-commerce policy, which basically is intended to set the basic framework on how e-commerce is supposed to be looked at in India, which includes a lot of competition aspects on how is data to be regulated and whether data is to be treated as essential facility or does data inherently give create barriers of entry, etc. So a lot of it actually is going on right now and it's all very fluid and nothing's set in stone so far, but it's a place that I would say it needs to be watched very closely.
0: Brent, I imagine everything is completely settled in Hong Kong.
4: <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, settled in the sense that we have not been... So far, looking at big tech issues, as we're really still in just our third year, uh, our initial focus has, has been on cartel enforcement. And that's because those are the greatest areas of public concern in Hong Kong. Uh, it also allows us to build our experience to be able to take on the more sophisticated types of competition issues that are presented by big tech and similar market sectors. And also, because what I have found personally to be interesting coming from the United States, certainly in the e-commerce sector, it's not particularly well-developed or heavily used in Hong Kong. And I've been curious as to why that might be the case. And, and interesting, an answer that I've consistently heard is that people in hong kong hong kong has the most expensive housing prices in the world i think maybe it's tied with singapore this year singapore and hong kong are are great rivals but i think that's probably something we wish we were not vying for top spot on exactly but um common problem the people in hong kong live in very very small spaces it's not uncommon for you know four or five people to live in 3 or 400 square feet and the theory that i've heard is that You know, you don't want to stay home in your very small apartment. You want to go out, and in a hot and humid place like Hong Kong, where do you go? You go to the shopping mall. People like to go out and shop. They don't want to sit at home and order on the Internet. And as a result of that, there really hasn't been, I'd say, you know, the same development of e-commerce in Hong Kong. And it just doesn't seem like the most important local issue for us at, at this point, both in our development or even as an area of great public interest. Now, in terms of ride hailing... We have Uber in Hong Kong. It's technically an outlaw organization. It's not legal. It operates and there have been a couple of instances where the government have decided to put their foot down and have arrested and jailed Uber drivers. So certainly we don't have issues of mergers with other ride hailing uh, organizations. Now, there's in fact a lot of public demand for it. And at this point, the government has not you know, yielded to that public demand. You know, our position has been that we, you know, advise that the government find a way to incorporate, integrate innovation, disruptive technologies and everything with the existing service sector. The government has come back recently and proposed what is like a franchise taxi scheme, which is essentially think about nicer taxis. They're much more expensive. They're regulated fares. But they'll be nicer cars. They'll have Wi-Fi. Maybe they'll give you a, a a bottle of water or something. And the interesting thing I found in Hong Kong is people don't care about pricing so much. Taxis are quite inexpensive in Hong Kong, but taxi drivers have the reputation of being quite rude, and people just want to be treated better. And they believe if they have Uber, they will be treated better by Uber drivers, and uh, they're not at risk of being thrown out of a taxi because they, you know displeased the taxi driver in some fashion. And the franchise taxi scheme is the government's proposal to kind of give better quality. You'll pay for it. We have expressed concerns about the competitive implications of the scheme that the government is proposing. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But essentially the scheme would add 600 taxis, which most people believe would be far too insufficient for what the demand is for additional ride ride-hailing, ride-sharing services. Right.
0: And Nanette, how about in in China, mainland China?
2: Well, it's actually interesting what uh, Brent has been saying about um, around e-commerce. It's quite the reverse in China. E-commerce is the way of shopping. I'd suggest even the preferred way uh, for shopping. And so naturally, it has and does occasionally raise concerns. One of the cases I mentioned earlier uh, about the question on private enforcement, JD.com and its dispute with uh, with Alibaba concerns certain practices that JD.com is alleging in the e-commerce space, for example. I think a couple of other things to, to mention as well is that in China, there is interest in big data. There is interest in the practices engaged in with respect to the new economy, new technologies. What's also quite interesting is that earlier this, uh, earlier this year, the SAMR published draft regulations around abuse of market dominance, and one of the provisions in there specifically seeks to deal with how do you assess dominance, how do you determine that a company is dominant in relation to new technology in the new digitized economy in which we currently live in. So I think e-commerce being important, the fact that the SMR, the antitrust authority, is thinking about these issues, I think indicates that like in other jurisdictions, like in the US and in the EU, China is also closely watching this and and paying close attention to what is going on. And to some extent, it's a bit like Carla was saying, there's a watch, wait and see. But I think because there are some important tech giants in China, it necessarily means there needs to be some form of approach in terms of understanding how antitrust rules should apply in this context. And then very briefly, in terms of ride hailing, Uber was in China, but Uber has been selling out in various jurisdictions, like in China as well. It was bought out by its rival, DD. And what's been interesting to watch there is that there are rumors that this transaction is still being investigated by SAMR, I say rumors because it was as a result of a concern that the transaction should have been notified, but was not. I think, as I understand the DD's position, was that the thresholds were not met and therefore it did not actually trigger a filing. The SAMR has a power to review transactions that do not qualify for notification if they believe it will raise an uh, anti-competitive impact on competition. And so either way, the authority would still review the transaction either because it should have been filed and it wasn't, or in fact, there is concern that it raises uh, competition issues. There is another dimension about the transaction as well, which may have resulted in the deal not being filed. There is a structure, a VIE in short, DD has a, a VIE structure. And so there's also some discussion around whether or not such a transaction can and should be notified. But suffice to say, that questions around right hailing around e-commerce big data and so forth is very much top of the agenda uh, in china great
0: so it's quite clear that there is an awful lot going on in the competition area and these new economies and so forth Um, let's change focus for a moment and let's talk about going forward are we going to see some of these same trends continuing what's happening in some other areas of competition, such as maybe uh, you know cartel, which is the old hardcore criminal violation, price fixing, things of that nature, bid rigging. What I really would like to do is open the floor to each of you to tell us what we should be looking for in the competition area in the next coming years, whether it's the next year or so. Look into that crystal ball. Tell us a little bit about What's coming down the line? I'm going to start with Kala. Tell us, if you will, about Singapore and the Southeast Asia area, and then we'll go to Brent.
1: I'm going to sort of do this very point form. I think amongst the various countries, um, cartels will always remain top priority. The businesses continue to be developing, so you have issues in relation to just price fixing, bid rigging, and so on. So that's going to be quite a mainstay. Related to that, however, it's leniency. Should there be leniency in every country? And that's always been the big question. At the moment, only Singapore and Malaysia have leniency applications. And that makes it a little bit difficult because if none of the other countries have it and businesses are crossing each other, how do you decide whether to do leniency? An interesting point was Thailand amended their laws recently. In the proposed amendments they had leniency put in, in the final draft, they took it out. So the law has been passed without that. So it's it's watched this space, But even as I say all of that, leniency applications have been reduced. We have many different reasons or theories for it, but I'll leave it at that for the leniency. I just want to very quickly also touch on merger control. Merger control in some of the countries like Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia all the time, Thailand from the end of the year, and Singapore not to be forgotten. Singapore in particular, many countries sort of just shrug it off because, oh, it's a voluntary regime like the UK. We do not need to worry about it. The regulator has come out quite categorically to say voluntary doesn't mean voluntary. Look at your market definition very carefully. Make your assessment. Ensure that your assessments are carefully crafted. Otherwise, you're going to end up potentially with an Uber grab, for which a penalty was imposed not because they failed to notify in Singapore, but it was imposed because the market definition taken was different to what the regulator thought it was supposed to be, and it was implemented without the due clearance obtained from the regulator. So merger control, very important. Watch the space.
4: Great. That's interesting. Brent? Over the course of the next year, the Hong Kong Competition Commission will continue to emphasize cartel enforcement. That's been a priority for us. As I mentioned earlier, we've tried our first two cases that were cartel cases in the last year, and we're eagerly awaiting the decisions in those cases, which could come literally any day. But beyond that, we also want to look for appropriate opportunities to set important precedents in other areas, such as abuse of substantial market power, vertical conduct type cases, and horizontal non-cartel cases. And in that regard, right now we're undertaking a review of a Hong Kong Seaport Alliance, which is very, very significant for Hong Kong because the port sector is a major part of our economy. And if that transaction had been a merger between the parties, we would not have been able to review it because we don't have a cross-sector merger law. But they chose to um, structure it as a joint venture. So we have the opportunity to look at that under our first conduct rule, which is essentially one, the provision, the equivalent of section one of the Sherman Act that regulates um, anti-competitive agreements between competitors. So beyond that, we want to encourage cooperation for parties. We're looking at our leniency policy. We're considering adding a cooperation policy that will create kind of transparent, predictable incentives for those that don't get leniency who nonetheless cooperate. And we want to increase the pace of our enforcement. Um, and obviously, build deterrence. If we're lucky enough to win our first two cases, we you know want to seek deterrent fines, and in appropriate cases, we're going to consider seeking parental liability, uh, which is something that is theoretically permissible under our law. If you know we can prevail in in setting that precedent with the courts. Beyond that, I just also really want to mention our advocacy and policy work, since the beginning of the commission, they have put a great emphasis on our public education and public advocacy. It's been very creative, very interesting, different types of public education campaigns, and we will plan to continue those in the future. If anybody wants to check out any of our past work, you can see them in our website, compcom.hk. And then finally, we're also working to develop our competition advocacy work as well and we've seen a real uptick and an encouraging uh, signs as more and more government agencies come to us earlier in the rulemaking process to uh, seek advice about the competition impact of any of the the schemes that are under consideration and uh, we think we're having increasing success in influencing kind of the outcome of some of those things to make sure they're taking competition into account Right. Nanette, what should we be looking for in the People's Republic of China?
2: I think several things. One is, going back to what I mentioned earlier, the changes of institutional reform. So as part of merging the three agencies together into SAMR, what the SAMR has subsequently done is to announce that it is wanting to devolve enforcement of the AML, which the AML allows it to do, but to devolve it down to the local authorities. What this means is that the local authorities will be empowered to enforce the AML uh, with the serious uh, complex cases being reserved for enforcement by the SAMR at the central level. I think as a result of that, we are likely to see increased enforcement. Secondly, in terms of what kinds of practices are we likely to see more of, cartels, price fixing, market sharing. There's also been quite a focus on vertical restraints, particularly RPM, uh, resale price maintenance, and that's likely to remain an important area of enforcement and a priority going forward. A third area is abuse of market dominance, where there are a number of cases pending uh, before the authorities at the moment, in the past, the authorities have looked at uh, have looked at exclusivity arrangements, tying, bundling, refusals to supply, and it's likely that this is is expected to to continue. A fourth point I'd note is that the minister for the SAMR announced, in keeping with what the authorities have done in the past, it announced late last year some of the key priorities going forward, and particularly in 2019. And what he did was was to mention a couple of sectors, a few sectors where they were going to focus enforcement and prioritize. It included APIs, for example, was one area they mentioned. Another area they mentioned was building materials. Another area they mentioned was everyday consumables. So all this to imply that there are certain sectors, there are certain areas on which they will focus going, uh, going forward. One final item to note is around leniency. Leniency at the moment has not been a significant part of discovering or uh, unearthing cartel behavior. I, I suspect this will increase going forward. One of the reasons for suggesting that is that at the moment we are expecting to see regulations which spell out in more detail the leniency policy in China. So I suspect that this is something that will increase um, going forward. So a lot to look out for uh, in the future.
0: Right, that's a busy agenda. Kalyani, with, in India.
3: Uh, so much like everywhere else in Asia, cartel enforcement is an important priority in India as well. Uh, what is interesting is that of late, uh, leniency has become an important part of cartel enforcement. In 2018, the CCI passed its first decision, granting full immunity to the leniency applicant. So that has predictably uh, triggered a lot of incentives to come ahead in leniency and provide disclosures in cartel cases. However, the regulation is still a very in flux. The CCI amended it in 2017 to give some more clarity on it, but it still remains fairly nebulous. So it's still a work in progress, so to speak. Um, And in terms of uh, sector wise, now, as a lawyer, I've been told never to say anything with certainty, but I can say (laughs) with a high degree of probability that tech companies are going to be an important focus area for the CCI in the coming future, especially because India takes the digitization as an important aspect of its uh, governance and the government is very focused on that. Abuse of dominance remains as a very important enforcement area in India, surprisingly for a new jurisdiction. Its first case was an abuse of dominance, not a cartel case, which was a DLF case. And abuse of dominance continues to remain a strong focus of India. And what is interesting is that in India, not they also look at exploitative abuses, which are fairly commonplace, in fact, more so than exclusionary abuses. And because of that, there's a lot more consumer-centered complaints as far as abuse of dominance are concerned. But... The most important thing to look forward in India is that in 20 and the end of 2018, the government formed a competition law review committee to review the legislation in India, and come up with suggestions on possible amendments to the act and the entire regulations. Which is currently, uh, we, we believe that the report, the recommendations have been submitted. And we're likely to see a full-fledged report on it. And India is currently going in general elections uh, in April. So sometime after the new government has formed, we are likely to see some substantial changes in the law.
0: Great. Well, it looks like we're reaching the end of our program. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Great program, very timely, quite a bit going on in the competition arena in Asia. That's quite clear. If our listeners have questions, how can they
1: reach you? Kala? The best way is always email. My email address is my name, kala.anandaraja at rajatan.com. Or you can give me a call, 65 country code 62320111. Kalyani. The best way to reach me is also email. Uh, my
3: email is my name, kalyani.sing at chandiok.com, which is C H A N D H I O K.com. Or you can give me a call at uh, the country code is plus nine one zero one one two four three three nine zero seven five
2: Nanette. I can be reached at Nanette at Freshfields or very happy to take a phone call at plus eight six one zero six five three five four five two five.
4: And Brent, I can be reached at uh, Brent Snyder one word at compcom.hk. Or my telephone number is country code 852-3952-0892. This is Ken O'Rourke, probably
0: most easily reachable through our website at OMM.com. This concludes another podcast with the ABA section of antitrust. If you'd like what you heard, please join us in person as some of our upcoming conferences. Details are available at ambar.org slash antitrust. I'm Ken O'Rourke. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.